It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with breaking details of a historic moment in Canada as we get closer to legalizing pot. Bill C-45, the cannabis bill, has officially passed the Senate vote. The Senate accepting the latest version of the government's long-debated legal a marijuana legislation voting 52 to 29, approving the government's newest version of the bill. That means Bill C-45 now moves to royal assent, the final step in the legislative process, and that could happen within days. Our Keith Baldry joins us with more on this breaking news. And Keith, marijuana still won't be legal, though, until the fall. Yeah, just got off the phone with uh, B.C. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, who tells me he doesn't expect the first store to be open under the new rules until mid to late September. That's the most optimistic scenario. Uh, he says provinces actually want uh, more time to implement uh, what he says is going to be a historic change. He expects uh, to get everything up and running uh, full speed will likely take at least a couple of years. So it's a slow ramp up, one or two stores in September, and then more outlets popping up as uh, various uh, rules are followed at the municipal level and the government level. So not a lot of change to happen very quickly. All right. That's uh, the marijuana legislation. You also have breaking details, Keith, about changes to the fish farm industry. Yeah, Agriculture Minister Ilana Popham to uh, announce tomorrow some very contentious news, if, depending on what side of the issue you're on. She's going to be giving uh, BC's uh, fish farms four years to secure First Nations, local First Nations support and to get a ruling from the uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans that their operations do not pose a risk to wild salmon habitat. So uh, it's going to be contentious because the anti-fish farm folks want those farms gone now. Others, the industry wants more certainties, but they've got four years to make the required changes. All right. Thanks for that. Keith Baldry reporting in Victoria. All right. Got some breaking news in traffic now as well. Check out this live shot of the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge, which is shut down right now due to a police incident. That's the approach that we're showing you at the moment. Traffic in the area is a nightmare and commuters are being advised to stay away. We'll check in with Trish Jewison, Jewison, who's up in Global One right now with more on the delays and some alternate routes. Trish. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Unfortunately, yeah, this has been going on for about an hour now, a police incident that has traffic blocked on the iron workers in both directions. So as you can imagine, a lot of evening commuters getting held up in this. It is absolutely jammed trying to get off the North Shore right now. Uh, traffic is being blocked on the Upper Levels Highway at Lynn Valley Road. Unfortunately, the people who are already on the bridge, there's not much they can really do. If you're trying to get out of Vancouver right now, traffic is backing right into Burnaby. An alternate route, really, your only alternate route at this point, is the Lionsgate Bridge, which is definitely picking up a lot of extra volume at this point. Or you could opt for transit instead and take the sea bus to get to and from the North Shore. But definitely avoid coming over to the uh, Iron workers memorial bridge all feeder routes are jammed and you just can't get by not until further notice back to you chris no doubt major problem in that picture in picture you folks at home can see right now that's the cassiar approach and that is at a standstill as well bit of an outlet there for some people trying to get off but uh, it's going to be a long time before that backup is cleared 
All right, we'll move on, keep an eye on that for you. But right now, RCMP are confirming the vessel that capsized in Tofino last week has been found. And a salvage team has brought it to the surface. The fishing boat with five people aboard capsized early last Friday morning. One person was pulled from the water. A second managed to swim to shore. But three men, Marcel Martin, Carl Martin Jr., and Terrence Brown Jr., well-respected members of the Tolokiet First Nation, are still unaccounted for. The boat, located by RCMP West Coast Marine Section near Duffin Passage, is going to be held for investigation. And while RCMP have scaled back the official search for the men, volunteers continue to scour the water. Now, it is moving day on Surrey's Wally Strip. Tent City residents packing up and leaving for new homes. The province has set up temporary modular homes in three locations nearby. Aaron MacArthur joins us live on the Strip tonight with reaction. This is going to take some time, Aaron. Yeah, Sophie, it will certainly be a process. So many people here with so many different needs. Getting everyone settled will take some time. But most people here, most of the businesses along the Strip and government certainly want something done because a new solution needs to be found. 170 people call this street home. Flopped on mattresses in tents, stacked one on top of another. Some people have lived here on and off for years. And on the day some are supposed to pack up and relocate, not everyone wants to go. A bit skeptical in a way. Um, you know what I mean? When someone's like handing you something, I'm always looking at the other hand and seeing what they got behind their back. The plans aren't the plans. The, the plans that they're telling everybody are totally different what they're telling us. Taxpayers will spend $18 million over the next two years to build and run the modular housing. Combined with shelter spaces, there are about 320 beds available for people to move into. Our goal is to provide enough housing between the shelters and the transitional accommodation unit that every individual that we're aware of that is in that area now will be provided uh, uh, accommodation in a shelter or in those transitional accommodation units. The situation has gotten so bad in this part of Wally, dozens of businesses have folded or moved, and some are just waiting for anything to happen hoping this finally will end the revolving door of break-ins and vandalism. We only hope the best. I'm not going to doubt anything right now because uh, it's been too long, long time coming, right? I'm just hoping that do what they say because we don't get anything out of it. we just like regular citizen, but they get all the benefit. We don't. By late afternoon, people in the shelters had mostly moved into their new homes. It means awesome. How's that going to change your life? It's going to change it totally different to where my family's going to be so proud of me and my grandkids will be proud of me and that I'll be able to go back to work or back to school and have my own living space. The campers will slowly move out as the week moves along. Now Aaron, those campers who don't want to move, what happens if they don't? Yeah, that's a, a good question, one we've been asking the city of Surrey all day today. And if they have a plan, they're not telling us. Their line is that this strip will be free of people as of next week, and slowly over the course of the week, everyone will move into the shelters or into the modular homes. If they don't go, the plan is to work with them individually to see what sort of solution they can come up with. And if that doesn't work, perhaps an injunction, perhaps some sort of bylaw infractions. But the goal, as I said, is to have this strip clear. We'll see how it all unfolds. Thanks, Aaron. 
Meantime, Vancouver is revealing new details about its housing strategy today. And one key area that could see some big changes, single-family neighborhoods across the city. Grace Key explains the plans being considered to add housing to the west side. Fatima Abasada and her family spent a year searching for an affordable home in Vancouver. After coming up empty, they started looking at multiplexes in Kitsilano. Almost all the people around this neighborhood are four. At least two, yeah, at least two kids. Even if they have more than two, usually they prefer to go, go and move in a rental house. The city of Vancouver is looking at introducing duplexes in low-density single-family neighborhoods, such as Carisdale and Dunbar. It's part of a long-term housing program. Most neighborhoods were pretty open to uh, kind of gentle infill density like this. Um, so we know we already, the laneway program, which was initiated 10 years ago, has become quite popular. Leslie McDonnell with Remax says it's one way to make real estate more affordable for local families. If you're able to find ways that are more creative to allow locals to live in those areas, half duplexes is a potential solution where, you know, you can have two families come together and each spend $2 million, then it's actually affordable. I think it's a great idea. You get more density in the area and it's a beautiful neighborhood, so why not? be okay. Depends on the size of the lot, you know. Some of the lots are pretty small. I wouldn't want to duplex on that. In Kitsilano, where many multiplexes are going up, Fatima says it does come with growing pains. Every day we have a problem to find a parking spot. You know, if even if they want to have some permits to develop some kind of the place, I think city must think about so many aspects before they want to do that. A public hearing on duplexes will be held in July. Grace Key, Global News. And at the same time, the city is trying to increase affordability with density. We learned a project slated for commercial drive will no longer be going ahead. The Kettle Society and Boffo Properties announcing today they will not move forward with a 12-story project at Commercial and Venables, citing the financial demands placed on it by the city. The plan was for 30 homes of supportive housing for people with mental illness in the community with expanded drop-in services to be financed by the construction of up to 200 units of market housing and 18,000 square feet of retail space. But the developer says the city also wanted a cash community amenity contribution from BAFO between 16 and $6 million, making the project financially unviable. We've indicated since day one and at many key milestones along the way that at 12 stories, with the public benefit, the city agreed with us with what we were looking to provide to the community. At 12 stories is where we would be able to break even with it. In a statement, the city is blaming the developer, saying it did not submit a rezoning application and so community amenity contributions were not determined, leaving negotiations at a stalemate. Thick black smoke could be seen for kilometers in Abbotsford this afternoon. Fire crews called to the Captain Crunch recycling facility on Vi Road. Traffic was rerouted in the area as crews battled the flames. While firefighters were able to knock down the fire fairly quickly, with so much fuel, it is expected to continue burning for some time. No word on exactly what caused this fire. 
Now, over in Richmond, WorkSafe BC is investigating the collapse of a roof on a silo at Lafarge Cement Plant. It happened this morning at the facility on Number 9 Road. Thankfully, no one was hurt. The company confirms an internal investigation is also underway. Some dramatic moments for B.C. ferry passengers and crew this morning with a man overboard. Crew members launched a rescue boat to reach a man who went into the water near Bowen Island. The Queen of Cowichan had just left Horseshoe Bay when the incident happened. Thankfully, they reached the man who was then transferred to a Coast Guard boat. He was very cold, but otherwise said to be okay. Changes are being promised in the hopes of reversing the deadly opioid epidemic. New numbers out today indicate nearly 4,000 deaths in this country. The top three provinces hardest hit, Alberta ranks third, Ontario second, and you've guessed it, B.C. is number one. And more than half of those overdose deaths involved fentanyl. John Hua has a closer look at how the numbers break down here in B.C. and the steps the federal government is taking to try to reverse that trend. The opioid crisis has swept across Canada and stolen lives in every corner of our country. But if there was a centre to the heartbreak, it would be right here in British Columbia. The death toll increases and continues to increase, and we need to do more. In 2017, there were 3,987 opioid overdose deaths in Canada. Of those, 1,422 lost their lives in B.C. That accounts for more than a third across the entire country. We're the first hit, and we have been the hardest hit. Jansen's son, Brandon, was among more than 900 British Columbians who died of an opioid overdose in 2016. To see those numbers grow is gut-wrenching for his mother. It obviously shows a clear picture that what we have been doing thus far isn't helping. BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy, was unavailable for comment. In Ottawa, the federal government is focusing on how big pharma peddles prescription pain medications to doctors. I'm really playing uh, with the industry uh, to ban and to stop marketing uh, to healthcare professionals when it comes to opioids. People trying to save lives on the front lines of this crisis say going after drug marketing doesn't address the immediate need. To end the crisis, we need to get people on safe doses of medication that they know what they're taking and so that they're not dying. Blythe says BC's disproportionate number of overdose deaths is tied to the combination of drugs coming through our ports and poverty on the downtown east side. We end up with a lot of uh, drugs coming in and a lot of drug use. But as this epidemic continues to evolve, spreading across both distances and demographics, unless bold action is taken, many worry the body count will continue to climb. John Hua, Global News. The Kamloops School District is changing the way it handles sexual assault allegations. The changes come after a series of reports by Global News on students who were allegedly assaulted by classmates and complaints the school never followed up. Jeff Hastings explains the recommendations made to the district and how it plans on implementing them moving forward. We're doing um, as well as can be expected. We're moving forward. Six months now since her daughter reported the attack, an alleged assault at a Kamloops school by four boys, claims she was struck, groped, and kissed. I really think this is indicative of 
why our society has an epidemic of violence and sexual violence against girls and women because nobody is willing to be accountable. And she was not alone. Another family from a different school came forward the same week with a similar allegation, also believing that school officials had done little in response. She was in tears. Uh, She said that she was tired of the harassment that she had been receiving, that we didn't know it had been going on for months. I think what these incidents have done is shine a light on an issue that we have to date not tackled as assertively as we are. An uncomfortable light revealing a clear need for change. The district struck a task force on school safety. Their orders ranging from finding out how widespread peer-to-peer sexualized violence is in the district to a review of policies and protocols. They've come back with several recommendations for change, starting with improved education of students. We need to look at when we're educating students around uh, healthy relationships, healthy boundaries, and sexual uh, consent. I commend the task force. I feel the report was very thorough and sensitive to the issues. Um, I think they were really effective naming the issues that, that contributed to this happening. There will be an updated definition of sexual misconduct, and it will be made easier for students to report bad behavior, while ensuring staff know how to handle complaints properly. Many of the recommendations go right to the heart of the original complaints. I'm just happy that that other children will be safer now because of this. So, Jeff Hastings, Global News. Right now, you may have noticed a new fee on your latest BC Hydro bill, but you might have missed it too because it only amounts to about 25 cents a month. That money is part of the Crown Corporation's new strategy to help customers who can't pay their hydro bills. Ted Chernecki has reaction and explains how it works. It's no secret BC Hydro's financial books are under the microscope as Victoria's in the throes of reviewing everything. Rates have climbed 25% in the last five years. So when it came to finding a way to get customers who are behind in their bills, Hydro went to every one of its 1.8 million residential customers for help. So the crisis fund is basically available to customers that are um, in a financial crisis. So things like job loss or a health crisis. It probably won't appear until your next statement, but there will be a line called BC Hydro Crisis Fund. It's collecting about $3 a year from each customer. Those who are proven to be in dire straits can then get up to $600 a year free to help catch up. Anything that's going to possibly cushion somebody's fall, because there are a lot of people falling now. Ah, that's good to know that. Are you behind on your your payments? No, no, not not yet, but I had some trouble a couple months ago and stuff like that. For $3, if we can help somebody out who's going through some rough times, I think that's awesome. But about one of those $3 will actually go to bureaucracy, at least in the first year. The goal is to raise $5.3 million a year, but the startup cost is $600,000, and the administration cost per year is $900,000. 28% goes to bureaucracy in year one, 15% in years two and three. The program was requested by a group representing some residential customers in the BC Utility Commission's review of BC Hydro's rate design application. And so BC Hydro is magnanimously stepping up to help those in need. But that magnanimity is on your dime. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Well, two days before the official start of summer, and we are right in the middle of a heat wave. BC Hydro predicting our power use could beat the June record. But... You can stay cool without breaking the bank. And our consumer reporter, Andrew, is here 
with some tips that go beyond cracking a window, right, Ann? <laughs> well, I hope so, but yeah. it could be a very expensive summer. Yeah, Thanks, you too. Well, yesterday, BC Hydro recorded the highest peak hourly demand of the season between 12 noon and 6 in the evening. Electricity use spiked as people turned on fans and air conditioners and refrigeration units worked harder to stay cool. At nearly 7,300 megawatts, it's a more than 10% spike over one week ago. BC Hydro forecasting is peak demand to be between 7,000 and 7,500 megawatts over the next few days. But there are ways to beat the heat and save energy. Closing drapes and blinds keeps sunlight out and also blocks out about 65% of the heat. Use fans by windows or doors at night to direct cooler air in and don't leave them running in empty rooms. Ceiling fans use about one-tenth of the power of an air conditioner but should rotate counterclockwise to help move cool air down. Hanging your laundry will prevent the dryer from generating more heat and save you about $50 a year. And cooking outside with a barbecue will avoid extra heat from the stove or oven. When it comes to air conditioning, we recommend that people use Energy Star certified air conditioners. They will save you about 30 to 40 percent. We recommend that people set it to about 23 degrees uh, Celsius. Anything lower than 22 degrees is actually going to cause your bill to significantly rise. So if the temperature inside your home is cooler, you actually want to keep all the windows and doors shut. That way you lock the cool air in and you keep the hot air out. And one other note here, BC Hydro set a new record for summer power consumption last August with a peak hourly demand of approximately 7,500 megawatts. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. A pioneering wingsuit flyer from BC who holds a number of world records has died in a skydiving accident. 68-year-old Reggie Hurlbut died in Illinois while training for an upcoming world record attempt. Investigators say his parachute opened, but appears to have become tangled. Fellow wingsuit flyers say Hurlbut made the sport what it is and was part of virtually every world record. Growing pressure on the federal government tonight to untangle the bureaucratic mess that has five B.C. families living a nightmare. Tanya Beja has the latest on families on hold because of governmental confusion over adoptions in Japan. We'll just show you our home away from home. Lee Fodi and Marcy Nestman have tried to make their Tokyo hotel room feel like home, but they're living in limbo, waiting to bring their son to Canada. I can't believe this is happening to us. Every day we wake up, this is just crazy, and and we think it's a bad dream. Five families from British Columbia were approved to adopt children in Japan. They picked up their infants last month, but the Canadian government won't give them visas to bring the babies back. You know, we feel like we got into a situation that goalposts changed on us when we could just see the finish line. The federal government suspended adoptions from Japan following a notice on a U.S. website that Japanese courts must approve all adoptions, a step that was never required for Canadian families. Canada's immigration minister isn't offering any clarity. We're working to make sure that they, they comply with the law as well as get, get them here as soon as we can. Just so I'm clear, you don't have a timeline no, I don't have the time. Okay. What is the real problem? Is there a real problem? Uh, and, uh, and we need to get to the bottom of this. Families' lives are stuck. The lawyer representing the family says they have followed every rule. I'm not aware of any 
change in procedure in terms of Japanese adoption. Um, everything that was done in these cases, in these five cases, is exactly the same as has been done approximately 200 times in the last 10 years. The parents are now in a race against the clock. Their Japanese visas expire in a few weeks. They fear they may be forced to leave without their children. We just keep clinging to hope that someone is going to find the political will to solve this for us and understand that we're five Canadian families in duress. Tanya Beja, Global News. Caught on surveillance video, a terrifying explosion on a bus in China's Sichuan province. Fifteen passengers were injured, but miraculously, it doesn't look like anyone was killed. The video shows some people jumping out and running off the bus in the moments before the blast. Cell phone video shows panicked passengers and some people carrying an injured victim off the bus. There are reports police have made an arrest, but there are no other details on just how this happened. Growing outrage from all sides isn't deterring Donald Trump from his policy of separating the children of illegal immigrants from their parents. Despite some small signs that Trump might be willing to consider legislation that might keep families together, publicly he's keeping up his defiant stance. Despite mounting outrage, President Trump is defiant and digging in. On Capitol Hill late tonight, demanding Congress fix the crisis that he created with his zero-tolerance policy. The system has been broken for many years, the immigration system. Republican lawmakers, panicked over the fallout, are vowing to end the separation policy with an emergency bill. A plan that keeps families uh, together while their immigration status is determined. And while the White House says Mr. Trump will consider a short-term fix, he ultimately wants comprehensive immigration reform. A legal authority to detain and promptly remove families together as a unit. We have to be able to do this. Mr. Trump delivered a campaign-style stemwinder earlier in the day to thunderous applause. Embracing the moment and the message. When you prosecute the parents for coming in illegally, which should happen, you have to take the children away. And breaking with his attorney general and bipartisan calls for more immigration judges at the border. We have to have a real border, not judges. Thousands and thousands of judges they want to hire. But the political pressure is mounting. Mr. President, have a heart for a change. Take that pen of yours and do away with this horrendous, inhumane policy of yours. A lobbying group that includes dozens of major CEOs from Walmart to MasterCard and Boeing demanding the Trump administration put an end to its policy, while a group of more than 600 United Methodist clergy and members are accusing Attorney General Jeff Sessions, also a Methodist, of child abuse and discrimination. For his part, Sessions raised eyebrows overnight when asked about comparisons of the zero-tolerance policy to Nazi Germany. Well, it's a real exaggeration. Of course, in Nazi Germany, they were keeping the Jews from leaving the country. In Health Matters tonight, a team from UBC has advanced a 30-year-old surgical procedure that once revolutionized the treatment of heart disease. Linda Aylesworth tells us how it works and how it could save even more lives. It's called atherosclerosis, or narrowing of the arteries caused by plaque buildup. One treatment, push the vessels open again with a balloon, a procedure called angioplasty. The problem with angioplasty is that the vessel wants to recoil. 
So to prevent the recoil, you put in a metal stent. The stent holds the vessel walls open, allowing blood to flow freely. But in as many as 25% of patients, the stent becomes clogged over time. It's called restenosis, a problem researchers have been trying to resolve for decades. Much of the current work now is focused on developing new devices that can either prevent it or, in, as in our case, the early detection. Enter UBC professor Kenichi Takahata. This idea goes back to my PhD uh, study. Takahata used his knowledge in electrical engineering to create a smart stent. We are adding the ability to sense how the device is doing after the implantation. And so we added a sensor. The microsensors at either end of the smart stent sense the pressure of the blood flowing through. If the blood pressure drops, it means the stent is becoming blocked. The real beauty of this is that you can um, try and determine earlier than information we currently have as to whether you are at risk of a heart attack and if so, doing something earlier on. It's still early days, but the plan is to use radio frequency energy to relay information from the stent to an external reader. Perhaps use an app on your iPhone to monitor your own condition. So we are very uh, excited uh, with that the outcome that we have. Yeah. And we are very looking forward to future. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. <clears throat> No doubt. Another record-setting day around parts of the province, too. We'll check in with Christy yes. right now for the latest. Hey. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, but but a dozen records, second day in a row, breaking records. I want to just show you a quick change in our warnings. The areas that have a warning are in red. The areas under a special weather statement in gray. But you'll notice that the outside of Vancouver Island has now uh, ended. No longer a special weather statement there. And same for the Sunshine Coast. Because your temperatures will only warm up to about 26 or 28 degrees. In my opinion, that's still hot. It is certainly going to be hot. But you're no longer reaching that 30-degree weather. Hotspot around Canada. Canada today, Lydon at 39.5 degrees. Incredible heat. They broke a record there, and here's four more of them. Uh, another one, Lillouette at 38.7, Princeton 32.5, Burns Lake just behind, and Nelson hitting 30 degrees. Incredible heat. For those of you in the interior, two more days of hot weather on the way, whereas the south coast, just one more. And the heat has changed the fire danger rating. Just in the last 24 hours, we're now starting to see a number of areas at an extreme level, And I think tomorrow you're going to see that dark red spread even further across the province. Be careful out there. I had a look at the fires across the south coast. There's four of them burning. Uh, three of them are caused by people. So tomorrow afternoon we have a risk of lightning. That's a concern with it being so dry out there. All across the lower two-thirds of the province we have a chance of these uh, pockets of showers or thunderstorms and for the south coast it's mainly near Campbell River and over towards Hope that we could see that. So there's your forecast. Mix of sun and cloud with the stray showers or thunderstorms possible. Hot once again 34 in Kamloops, 32 in Merritt and for the south coast uh, lower mainland we'll see up to 30 degrees away from the water and on Thursday temperatures are going to start to cool off. That is the first day of summer everyone. It's still going to be beautiful just a slight chance of showers expected on Friday, and I'll leave you with this stunning shot from Michael in Port Coquitlam taken this morning during the sunrise. That is lovely, and he got up early for that one. For sure. Thank you, Christy. Oh, oh what? Oh, he just caught Squire. <laughs> just oh, caught what? Squire. There he is. He's Making a cameo. Squire is in the building, everyone. <laughs> we'll get to him in a second, but first, it is something we all take for granted. 
He's going to do it right now. Plop down in his favorite chair, in his case, to be on TV, but in this case, to watch TV. Mm-hmm. We don't have a piece of furniture in either of our homes that he hasn't sat mm-hmm. on and broke. 21-year-old Brock Brown from Lansing, Michigan. It was almost impossible for him to plop into a chair because of a genetic condition. He's seven foot eight and 500 pounds. Luckily, an Indiana company saw him on Facebook and made him a custom, very strong, five-foot-wide chair. Like I belong in this chair. This one's more like it's sturdy. So just seeing this and seeing the look on his face was priceless. You know, I would have paid a million dollars for that chair had I known that it would make him that happy. Needless to say, Brock is happy to finally have a place to rest his feet, which, by the way, are size 28. What? Oh, my goodness. Big dude. Okay. And Squire. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> In his own favorite chair. Well, it's nice. There's no back, though. This could be very dangerous. I'm here. You're a little bit you? wobbly. Thank you. <laughs> um, before we talk about that, very special meeting in Las Vegas today. I'm sure you are aware of it for some of the survivors of the Humboldt Broncos bus tragedy. The Canucks posted on Twitter, Henrik and Daniel Sedin and Brock Besser stopping by to say hello to the players. The team will be honored tomorrow night in a special ceremony at the NHL Awards. Very nice. Yes. Brock Besser is up for Rookie of the Year, although he likely won't win that because of the injury. Took too many games away from him. Uh, Henrik and Daniel, though, up for the King Clancy Award, which is basically for charitable work off the ice. I think they have a very good chance Mm -hmm. of winning that. Mm -hmm. Big party tomorrow night in a place known for parties. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, they almost had a huge Stanley Cup party. But it right. turned out to be a Stanley Cup party for Alex Ovechkin and his friends. <laughs> I actually still think Alex Ovechkin is still holding the Stanley Cup over his head somewhere. Uh, tomorrow they will hold the NHL Awards in Las Vegas. And the anticipation, and I think the hope is, at least around here, Henrik and Daniel Sedin could win the King Clancy Award for all the work they've done for charity over the years. Now they're up against P.K. Subban of the Predators and Jason Zucker of Minnesota. Both of those men have also done some great work off the ice, but it would be very nice to see the Sedins get this kind of career send-off. Now, the Canucks gave Reed Boucher a new one-year contract. He's one of those guys who doesn't score in the NHL the way he does in the minors. Uh, last year had just three goals with the Canucks in 20 games, but when he was down in Utica, he was able to score 25 in just 45 games with the Comets. Whitecaps are back to work Saturday in Philadelphia, the first game after the short World Cup break. Also, the first game after Alfonso Davies was named MLS Player of the Week for what was, so far, the best game of his Whitecaps career. It seems like a long time, but actually Alfonso Davies has only been with the Whitecaps organization for three years. We first became aware of him as a 14-year-old in their residency program. From that moment, the Whitecaps decided they would raise him carefully, prepare him for each step along the way. I know what's ahead for him, and I know the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as you want to say, and he's, have to, he's going to have to experience it all and go through it all. There's not a right and a wrong way of dealing with it, and I'm trying to best prepare him for what lies ahead. My job and the club's job is to manage him correctly, that we all... It's not about me, it's not about anyone, it's about the boy. Because he has played so well lately, people tend to forget he is only 17 years old. But that's something the Whitecaps have not forgotten. 
their guidance is not just on the field, but more importantly, off the field as well. You know, he, he's still a kid. He still likes to do kid things. And because, you know, example, you shouldn't be out 48 hours before a game. You should be preparing. You should be at home. And if you want to go out and have some food, you shouldn't be eating ice cream at 9.30 at night down Kitts Beach. And that's the reality of it. You know, if you're going to go that way, you need to teach them sooner rather than later. Now, it is a lot to ask a 17-year-old to mature rapidly, but he has shown the ability. Davies was part of North America's final presentation before it won the bid for the 2026 World Cup, telling the world his love for Canada. How many friends and family saw you around the world? Oh, all of them. All of them saw me. Uh, they were talking about the speech when I went back. They are really proud of me, you know, happy the progression that's happening right now. You know, I think everyone to this point has had a, an impact on his journey and you know rightly uh, in good ways as well and I'm the next person and I'm sure he'll have more people after me but my job is to obviously develop, coach, um, teach um, him good habits. Exactly. Mo Salah got the play today for Egypt. He missed the first game of the World Cup for them because of that injury in the Champions League final but this is not the way Egypt wanted to start against Russia. Scoring on themselves. That made it 1-0 for the Russians who won their opening game, 5-0 against the Saudis. Uh, Denis Chiryashev has three goals in this tournament so far. That equals Ronaldo. And Russia, with that 3-1 win, almost has guaranteed themselves a place in the knockout phase. Japan and Colombia starting their World Cups. Group H, this is a tight group. Any of those four teams could win it. Is that a nice block? Well, yes, but you're not supposed to use your arm. So, penalty kick. For Shinji Kagawa. It's in. 1-0 for Japan. 39th minute. Colombia. Free kick. Juan Quintero. That just gets over the line. So now it's tied. 1-1 at half. But Colombia was down the 10 men because of that uh, handball. So Japan takes advantage. Yuya Osako. That's the winner. 2-1 Japan over Colombia. Senegal and Poland, same group, Group H. 37th minute, Senegal on the run. Here's another own goal, deflected in by a defender, and Poland's down 1-0. Second half, Mabaya Niang is loose. Is he ever? Oh, nice move around the keeper. This is easy. 2-0 for Senegal. Poland would get one late in the 86th minute. Gregor Chawiak. I'm sure I said that exactly right. Uh, that made it 2-1, but Senegal are the ones dancing at the end as they get the win. I should really let Anne read this one because... <laughs> Not very good. What? Come on. Diving at the world-class soccer level is not what it once was. There was an art to it, and now they can't get well, away with it anymore. There may be an art to it, but it should never have ever happened. True. Right. I mean, you see it a bit in hockey, but then they started calling diving penalties. In, in soccer, it, it's part of some soccer nation's culture to learn how to dive and, and uh. cause a penalty. But now that they have the VAR, the video assist referee, that should begin to curb this dramatically, you would hope. Yeah. Well, It'll take a while, but players will get the message. Our Richard Zussman talked to someone who is an expert on how referees might be able to tell the difference between a real fall and Oscar-worthy acting. 
Lamberto Conforti has been making coffee a long time. But one thing he has been doing even longer is watching soccer. And he's developed a keen eye. I can tell with somebody diving or faking. But imagine being on the field. With things moving quickly, catching the flops aren't so easy. Diving has long been an ugly part of the beautiful game, with players plunging to the ground, faking an injury to draw a penalty. Oh, body's gone to ground. Penalty! Or something happens and your arms are coming up over your head, they call the platoon. But E. Paul Zare wants to make it easier to spot the cheaters. The University of Victoria neuroscientist studies human movement and says it's all about following the arms. And what you see with uh, a lot of soccer players when they're being tripped is they're doing things with their arms that are actually not part of your programming as a human animal if you're falling. Soccer is struggling to shed the diving reputation. This video... A few years old now, mock soccer players with a parody showing those players learning how to flop. Zare recently released his findings and says referees should be learning the science that separates a trip from a fall. Torres is off! I wouldn't mind if there was some idea for referees taught to look for certain cues so that when they're doing, you know, it's hard to see it as it's happening, I get that. Referees are getting some help. Video review has become part of the game with the option to go back and watch infractions and fans are noticing. I don't see as much diving in this one. But that alone won't get the acting out of the games. Oh, the referees decided he dived. Especially if referees don't know what they're looking for. Sprawling to the ground. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. <laughs> the writhing. You would see these guys go down, and they still do. They go down, they roll around like they've been shot. Oh, yeah. And then some dude comes out with a spray, and then the guy's yeah, up the again. Spray. He's fine. And he's all Magic. good. <laughs> like, I know, they have a great recuperative powers, soccer yeah. players. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like a, my four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, I'm fine, Mom. Yeah, I'm fine. After all. All right, uh, stay yep. cool if oh. you can. I was going to say a quick word on the weather. It's hot. Yeah, it's hot for one more day across the South Coast. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for watching.